Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the Sassville Podcast, where SaaS founders win their next funding round by convincing a panel of preschoolers that vegetables are actually secret superpower-inducing candy. <laughs> that might be easier than some VC pitches these days. Now, I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I really help B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. We supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft the business you're proud of and a life of impact and freedom that you absolutely love. As we usher in the vibrant warmth of summer, we also celebrate an extraordinary rite of passage, the culmination of an educational journey. Yes, it is graduation season. You know, where I live in Texas, I'm at the intersection of kind of four suburbs, and each has had graduation ceremonies staggered over the, the last few weeks. And a dozen universities around here have done the same thing over, say, the last three weeks or so. Uh, the last one was this last Saturday. And one, it's a big deal. It's certainly a rite of passage. Graduation marks the end of one chapter and the beginning of another. It's a major milestone. Celebration that someone has navigated the path, strewn with challenges, braved the storm of exams, papers, projects, and emerged victorious on the other side. Now, your diploma is not just a piece of paper. It's a testament to your perseverance, your dedication, and hunger for knowledge. And uh, you know, maybe for some, it's just like, I'm done. I'm out of here. Uh, over the past few years, there's been a fair amount of, we'll say, mudslinging between generations. You know, old people stuck in their old ways and the younger, lazier generation who just wants everything for free. And yeah, there are differences. But I have to say that I am really, really hopeful for the future. I mean, Sure, there are some entitled brats that get spotlighted, I mean, particularly on social media. But for the most part, the next generation I know is hardworking, committed, and most of them have some pretty high character. You know, not what you see on the, the news and, and that kind of stuff. I had the privilege of spending time with around 40 SaaS founders in their 20s over the past two weeks at, at a couple different events. They're doing incredible things. It's really inspiring work. I mean, some with degrees and others without. They were smart, scrappy, and most of all, determined. And that makes me really hopeful for the future. It's inspiring. Every week, I see people rise to the expectations placed on them. A uh, long time ago, one of uh, an old managers, you know, don't expect too much and you won't be disappointed. Like That's terrible leadership advice. So that's, that's garbage, honestly. And when I expect excellence, I'm rarely disappointed. I see creativity, innovation, and a willingness to do whatever it takes. As we delve into today's discussion, think about that. Let's carry with us a sense of hope and promise. Celebrate our graduates for sure. The future of SaaS and tech founders is, is in that bunch. And I look forward to the future with renewed optimism, especially after the last few weeks and just seeing some of the ideas and the creativity. So here's to new beginnings, to limitless potential, and a future that's as bright as the Texas summer sun. It's not one generation versus another. It's the best of all of us working together, bringing that experience and creating the future of business together. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Champion Leadership Group, the ultimate resource for SaaS founders and C-suite executives to accelerate capital-efficient growth. Unlock your business's potential by leveraging our time-tested SaaS growth toolkit, blueprints, and frameworks designed to help you scale AR from seven to eight to nine figures. Collaborate with an elite network of SaaS visionaries from all generations. Celebrate wins and overcome setbacks together. Prioritize strategic decisions to create profitable growth, premium valuation, and freedom. Elevate your SaaS trajectory with Champion Leadership Group. You can learn more at championleadership.com. Our SaaS founder earlier this week was Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari, CEO of both E7 Health and U.S. Drug Test Centers. He talked about how SaaS and tech are solving patient care and employer convenience challenges all together in healthcare. It's really, really cool. Our expert guest last week was Sam Baker, principal at Scale Venture Partners. Sam talked about the future of SaaS and gave us the state of the market from a unique perspective, and that is from a capital partner, somebody who's right there in the middle of it right now. My favorite part was when he talked about the go-to-market repeatability. I think it's a really cool concept. If you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give it a listen because it is definitely worth your time. Great, great guest. And speaking of great guests, my guest today is Phil Alvis. He is a man on a mission helping underdog SaaS founders compete against big tech. One of my favorite things. That's a great topic. As the CEO and principal consultant at DevSquad, he has led the build of over 100 SaaS products. You heard that right. 100 plus SaaS products for bootstrap founders and VC funded startups alike, leading multiple clients to multi-million dollar exits along the way. Now he is paving the way for other up-and-coming SaaS founders by developing the strategies, tactics, and insights they need. Earned a reputation as a leading expert on taking on tech giants. Welcome a guy who has earned the reputation as a leading expert on taking on tech giants and winning. Phil Alvis. Hey, Phil. Welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hey, great to be here, Jeff. Well, I love your background and, uh, you know, you've built SaaS for other companies and now you have your own. Tell me about that journey. Yeah. So I actually sold a very small SaaS that I built, uh, when I started my career, I started doing like software, custom software for other people. And, and I built this one product for a person and I wrote about it in my blog and what happened, that blog post ranked number one on Google for a keyword for other people that want a software just like that. Uh, and initially, I just gave people like another version, kind of like a, I stand up the same software in different servers. Uh, and then eventually that becomes a problem because now like when there was a bug, I had to fix in like six oh, places. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <Oops. laughs> so that's kind of like when I learned what a SaaS was. So I turned that into like a SaaS offer. Uh, and I ended up getting like quite a few customers in Brazil where I'm originally from was a, a SaaS for direct sales to pay commission and manage things like that. But again, I start with a custom Building custom software, I kind of accidentally found that. And then I sold uh, the company. Uh, it wasn't the low six figures, but was enough money for me to move from Brazil to the United States and to not work for a couple of years. So I could go to school. That's why I got here in a student visa. Uh, I ended up getting a job as a CTO and a company, an e-commerce business. And then I saw there was a, such a big need for 
had for development teams and development teams that actually understood product and they think about the big picture. And that's how I started Dev Squad. Dev Squad ended up growing to like a, a hundred people company. Uh, and then I start having a lot of issues to follow on my promise. My promise when people hire my consulting firm is that I'll give them a high performing development team. So when it was a team of like five, it was very easy to. <laughs> that's, that's easy to manage, right? That's <laughs> very easy. Yeah, so, 100 is a little bit different. So we started losing customers because we were dropping the ball. And I'm like, oh, we need to do something about it. And then I start and I, and I went deeper. And there's a lot of research make, made by companies by Google of what makes a high-performing development team. Uh, there were some solutions out there that help us track some metrics that matter. And I started using some of those softwares. But eventually, I found a lot of gaps on those products. And then I remember that my own customers at Dev Squad, they usually build a very successful product in the industry they know very well. And I know the industry of building high-performing development teams very well. And that's how DevStats start. It starts as a software to guide development teams to high-performing uh, stage. And we do things like, first we benchmark where they are. We track like, how well are you planning? Are actually finishing what you say you would do? Like, how good is your release? How much of the things that you pull out is actually breaking? Uh, you know, uh, what's the quality of your code? Are you doing a lot of real work? And we go deeper into other stuff. But basically, that's all my software does. It's help us benchmark where development teams are and, and help them improve. And, and that, again, with, with a, start with an internal tool. From the beginning, I wanted to be a SaaS product, but it first solved that problem of not me being able to my customers and tell, look, I promise you a high-performing development team, <laughs> and this is science that guarantee there's a high-performing development team working on your product. Here's the benchmarks, and here's where we stack against the industry. And, and then um, from there, I kind of offered a product for other people. Oh, that's really, really good. It's interesting. I think some of the best SaaS products come out of really solving a problem that you have because you really understand that problem very deeply. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that, that was your case yeah, here. Yes, for sure. And, and I totally agree with that. Like having built like hundreds of SaaS products for other people, like when the founder understands that problem very deep, he can help with the solution. Of course, there's always going to be inputs from, from your users and you have to understand what your users are. But at the end of the day, it's always the founder's job to call the shots, right? It's your job. Everyone's coming to you with a bunch of information. Right. And it's your job to digest that information and call a shot. Uh, and if you understand that the market very well, you understand the problem very well, you're going to be more qualified to, to make the best decisions. That makes a lot of sense because you're right. We have a lot of stakeholders that want a lot of things. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's, there's just a, an endless mountain of requests. And so prioritizing those and, you know, clients want have different needs once and then, you know, ultimately making that decision. So is that something that came easy for you or was that, has that been difficult? Uh, at this stage on, on this product I'm building is, it's pretty easy, I would say, but I have been building software products for 10 plus years, maybe 15 plus years. And I have been learning along the way. I have been mentoring my clients, help them make decisions, learning from their mistakes, learning from my mistakes. I tried to build other SaaS products before they fail. Uh, and, and I think the 
number one reason was was an industry that I didn't understood very well. I was just like going after the money and like, yeah, I can build software. Let's go to this industry <laughs> that I know nothing yeah. about. <laughs> so, that happens so, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I think I, I'd probably like have seven. I wrote down another day failing SaaS ideas that I tried to talk <laughs> into market. And when I look deeper, it came down to me not understanding that problem well enough, you know. That's really, really good insight <laughs> in, in, in doing that. That's something a lot of people don't talk a lot about. You know, everyone from the outside, it looks like, hey, you know, you rolled out of bed and, and you built a company with 100 devs and, uh, and they're all high performing and it's just magic. But yeah. there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. And, and again, and, and you really learn when when she hits the fan, right? It's when I started losing customers and when you start dropping the ball that I was like, uh, what's going on? We need a solution. And the software became a solution. But even uh, though that company grew to successful and, and we have, we work with like public companies with very big companies and customers, I was still trying to do other stuff on the side. I was still trying to like, okay, I want to have a SaaS offer. And I was still failing at those, even though I was running this decent sized consulting firm. <laughs> you know? uh, wow. So in building that the software, you know, I, I think it's really smart that you put the benchmarks in there for the industry. How did you come up with that idea and how did you get that data for comparison? So the data already exists. So like the first, uh, 2017, there was a research called Dora Research and they come up with the Dora metrics. Google put that research out. Uh, and that, that was nice of them. Yeah. That was the foundation of like a lot of products similar to us. Kind of like OKRs become a thing. And after OKRs, there was a lot of right. products to track OKRs. That research was a point where the Dora metric research come out. A lot of products came out to base on that research, how people track. Uh, and that's kind of like how we start using competitor softwares. But then there was other researches that were made and like being able to organize that data in a way that makes sense, that makes sense in the different team sizes. And, and so like, uh, I didn't made up any of those numbers, but I feel like I was able to figure out what are the six ones that are the most important and that's your benchmark. Uh, and how can we make this more approachable if you are not Google? So there's a lot of other companies trying to solve the same problem uh, and they're all kind of going after of the same industry standards. But now also that I have companies using the software, I have been using the software for a while, we start to create our own benchmarks and adapt and say, here, this is what you have to focus on. Anyway, long story short, it come up from the, the beginning, it started with the Dora metrics research, but from there we start to develop and to understand and to test. And Dora metrics alone wasn't enough. That's what we learned. And like what it is that we have to put on top of this to make sure uh, now those numbers are meaningful uh, for businesses that are trying to get something done the next quarter. Because it doesn't matter if your team is high performing if you're not adding real value for right. for product and for the business. And other Dora metrics tell you, you're high performing. Hey, you're moving very quick. Great. Are you moving in the right direction? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's an important thing. <laughs> so so uh, that's, yeah, kind of like how I, I come up with those numbers and, and build this. I, I feel like... I try to be like kind of like a GPS for development teams. This is how you get to the place you're trying to get with the fewest turn. This is kind of like the quickest way to where you're trying to accomplish. Uh, I think that's really useful as I've spent uh, a lot of years uh, building SaaS products and, you know, some small teams, big teams. And, and we have had that exact scenario where everybody is working and productive and we're pumping out releases 
And and then you're like, why do we build that? <laughs> yeah, so it's it's you know having that that GPS and really thinking about you know strategically, you know what are we working on and you know how should how should we be working? Yeah, and even for years, it was kind of like a taboo to talk about development teams' performance because we didn't know how to track. We knew story points were useless. We knew like softwares varying complexity. The team that you have, so like up until Google come with their research, like. There was a big community that say like, Hey, you can't track developers performance. And like, but I kind of see building softwares. We're not different than athletes. Like, you know, like athletes, they have a mentor, the, the coach right. are, are making them better. Uh, and that's why we build that too. Like myself, my role as the CEO of a, a firm, a tech consulting firm is to mentor my people, but then there's CTOs, VP of engineering. And, and those people, they need tools to be able to mentor and benchmark and help their teams perform better because that's what they're going to be, um, hold against anyways. Like how, right. how well you are hired to make sure this team does do a good job, but you don't have a lot of tools nowadays that allows you to even know if you are progressing or not. Right. Right. And I think that's a really important thing is what is a good job? What is a high performing team? You know, what does that really mean? So. In, in with your software, you know, what have you learned in, in building this? You know, what, what makes a high performing team and how is it different in a large organization with, you know, hundreds of developers versus a smaller organization with maybe, you know, two or 10 or 20? Yeah. I, I think when you're small, it's even like, I'll say under 10, it's easy for everyone to communicate and, and to see where you are and, and to like get to that stage kind of like by the feeling of your pants. <laughs> you know, like you're fine, you know where things are. Yes, as, yes. as you start to get bigger, that, that becomes a lot more complex. And so that's where having a tool that can help you, you manage that, uh, will really help. But like what I learned with DevStats, it's that there's only six numbers that if we benchmark those numbers, we're going to be able to see where every kind of team is. And like, it was by like going in and looking at every number that the industry was tracking, tracking those numbers and see how that was affecting our own teams to figure out what are the numbers that really, really matter. And that's how we create that benchmark. So everyone is tracking a bunch of data. But we are the only product out there that has this benchmark. I can get someone in. And like, you connect your GitHub, you connect your Jira, and I'm able to tell you right away, like, if it's green, yellow, or red. That's how, kind of like how we did. And I brought that from airplanes. I'm a pilot. I'm okay. Pilot. That's my, my, my hobby. And so when I get on my airplane, if things are on the green, I know I'm <laughs> going to leave. <laughs> that's an important thing. <laughs> and there, no, there's like, and there's like those six instruments, like the six main instruments. Uh, the six dials. And if those are good, those are out that I need. And there's a lot of other things going around and I can look at that to have a deep analysis if something go wrong right, with the right. main six. But the main six tell me exactly. And if it's on the green, it's good. It's on the yellow. I have to take a, be careful. It's on the red. I have a problem. So, so what's that? Like trying to simplify from green, red, yellow. Here's the six dials and then going from there. And that's kind of like what we learn. And it's, the things that we're looking at, we're looking at plenty of accuracy. We're looking at cycle time. Uh, 
like planning actions, like how if we say we would do this many items in our sprint, we were able to actually do what we would say. We would be surprised of how many times we actually not are not able to do what we can say. So I have to go back to planning. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not surprised at that. <laughs> so yeah. cycle cycle time, which make it. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that feature is delayed next time. Next yeah, and, then, time. and then we, we also really the next time. And then we usually like actually are tracking like how many sprints because we track like, oh, look, this has been pushing over for two or more sprints. That's maybe without priority at all. Sp- yeah. st- stop putting in the sprint if you're going to push <laughs> over and over and over. Right, right. <laughs> you know, uh, and then we track like um, how many deploys, what's the deploy frequency that you are doing. Teams that deploy more frequently uh, are usually more efficient. They're, it means that their, their systems are good, that they're having like good testing in place. And so they're being able to move things to, to production quicker. Um we track like of the things that move to production, how, how many times they broke. We call it change failure rate. And you want to keep that under like 10% because if things keep breaking, uh, there's something wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you, you know, uh, we track the size of the code reviews that we are doing. Teams they are doing code reviews with like a bunch of lines of code are not doing actually real code review. So like we learn if like code reviews is under like 400 lines of code, actual code review is happening and that's uh, allowing uh, the code to be better. Uh, we track how much real work has to be done, like how many lines of code that you just wrote uh, that you have to keep changing, like in the period of like the next 20 days after it got live. So it, it usually means a disalignment with business and where we're going. It means that like if things are changing that quickly and there's a lot of real work, there's a problem. So, so those are like the main metrics that we benchmark uh, and then from there we go deeper and, and help people improve them. But it's one one single screen. If it's out on the green, you're we are great. But most companies are not out on the green, of course. You know, and sure. then you like see where you go to fix it. And that's where you go deeper is when you see the the yellows or reds, and that's where you go deep to see what the real underlying issue is. Yeah. So then you have all kinds of reports that kind of like relate to the underlying issues. And then like most companies have all those reports, but they don't have like Tell me in 30 seconds, how am I doing? <laughs> and if yeah. I'm performing or not. And, and that's where we're able to do it. Uh, I think that's a brilliant concept. And, and it's something that, that I've experienced in, in you know, the, the pain that you're solving. Yeah. So how many, before DevStats, I mean, you, you see the, the statistics. I mean, how many releases or how many projects like that are successful? Is it high? Is it low? So, sorry, I don't think I fully understood your question. Well, how many dev projects, like releases, how many of those are successful when they're released? Is it, you know, 10%, 20, 100%? So, so by successful, you mean like they didn't break or they were able to get to market quicker? What do you mean by successful? I think that's a really good question is really defining what success is. And uh, what I really mean here is in, in successful is that the implementation, th- things were delivered that were promised and that they were released and didn't break. Okay, so um, I would say what we're tracking there, we want to have of other releases that we do, less than 15% of the stuff we take out break. That's a good place to be. Um, if you're seeing 0%, you're probably moving too slow. And if you're seeing 50%, uh, or higher, like something 
it's wrong. And so I could go back to my own teams on those teams that we lost customers. Uh, we were messing up like 30% of the time. And, wow. that, got, and that got people very frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so because like, we connect like, okay, what happened? Why we were messing up so often? And, and again, we want to keep that under 15% to make sure release. But that's another thing. Engineer has to work very close with product. And dev stats, it's the engineer piece, you know? So if engineer is able to deliver on what they promise and what they promise didn't end up having a huge impact, then they have to talk with product. Why is our release plan wrong? But that stats is to help the engineer leader, right? So the main metric here that we like to improve it's our planning accuracy rate because developers are way too optimist. Most times where we connect dev stats, we look at pl- uh, like the planning accuracy rate. Like they're making great releases and they're not, not breaking shit. And that's good. But yeah. they're usually like wrong 50% of the time on what they thought they would be able to accomplish. Or they only accomplish like 50% <laughs> of what they thought. We saw teams that were like, Finishing 20% of what they accomplish because people think if you put a, if we plan to do a lot of stuff, we're going to do it and we won't. And then like, or like we're putting too much and that's what is generating the, the, the break of things breaking, the failure rate being too high is because you're like trying to do too much in a, in the period of time. Right. Uh, you know, but yeah, that's one of the main metrics that we are able to help. Even successful teams improve. Like they're delivering great code and that's amazing. The product out there, but they're just planning very badly. And if we can help them plan better, like, and all the stakeholders will be happier that way. And that's one of the main numbers that we help teams that are doing well. Like things that go the market doesn't break, but. They're not planning as as well as they thought they would. Right. Like right. The developers are usually very optimist. So. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We can do. We can do a lot. We used to do that with story points. And it was the same thing. And, oh yeah, we could do. You know, however many it was, and 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 it was always short. Yeah. Yeah. They always thought they could do a whole lot more. And then we're able to look like last quarter, last six months, and really point out this is how much you can actually do. Let's go there. And when we did this much, we stuff broke more. The quality of our code reduced because of this. And, and so we end up doing huge code reviews. So that's where, where it gets super interesting. So what's been the, the best thing that you've learned from you know, running the, the dev shop, having people out, and using dev stats? So it's it's been amazing on the dev shop to be able to be more science driven over other than feeling base. You know, one thing that like sometimes we look at some products that weren't doing great, but the clients were happy. It was just their feeling. And there's other hmm. products where um that we were met, like doing amazing, but the feeling people were not thinking that we were doing bad. So bringing that to to the consulting firm allow us to take a little bit of the emotions out of making decisions and just look like where we really are and where we're accomplishing. And then as I wrote that out to other organizations, to the customers that we have now, that's kind of like the one of the biggest benefits that they have. It's like, because... When emotions go high, intelligence goes down. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is a hundred percent right. So, can we, instead of being emotional, look at data and see where we really are? Because sometimes things are not as bad as we think we are, or they're not as good as we think they are. That's usually how it goes. And so, the, the product really helps us 
do that internally and is helping us do that with our customers. So that's kind of like the biggest lesson, being able to make decisions not so much on emotions. I think that's really important is making it data-driven, but you're really teaching the clients what to want. You're teaching them what success looks like. And and everybody is looking at the same thing. So it's not just a feeling anymore or, you know, I like this or don't, but everybody is really looking at the same scorecard. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have some some common things to discuss. We have a common frame of reference. Exactly. Exactly. For sure. And and then also, that makes it easy because it, when if everyone understands what success looks like, it's easier to know if you're successful or not. Right. <laughs> or uh, like definition of done, you know, like it's been a, a huge problem. <laughs> and that's really fuzzy in a lot of dev projects is what does done look like? What does success look like? And you ask 10 different stakeholders and they'll give you 10 different answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, we're on the mission to solve that problem. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great one to solve. So you have a podcast as well, SaaS Origin Stories. Tell yes. me about that. Yeah, so it was also kind of like a strategy that I want to become a better SaaS founder uh, and I want to help my customers to build better SaaS. And one thing that I learned is usually when we try to build a company, we look at how a company that we like, a successful company is doing right now. And we want to like just copy what they're doing right now. But what we really have to think about is how they started and what insights can we get about how, how they started. Because the way you act when you're small is very different than the way that you act when you're bigger. Yes. And so, and so, and I didn't find a lot of content out there. There's like of the biggest companies, uh, there's a lot of content of how they did. Uh, but like most of my customers, like the successful customers, they they have B2B SaaS making a little bit over $10 million in the eight figures. And that's an amazing business, you know, but it's not like newsworthy. So this, the, the idea of the podcast was to interview people and learn about their origin stories, like what they did in the early days so people can learn from like what it matters and they can get what copy what it matters. For example, think about my consulting firm. We're big. We have a seven figures marketing budget. So if you want to do a consulting firm and try to do what I'm doing, it's going to be very hard because you're not going to have a seven figures marketing budget. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but if you, if you talk to me about like, so how did we start? How did you get your first customers? How did you figure out? That's what's going to help you start your consulting firm. And that's right. what's going to help you learn. And that's the whole idea of the SaaS or storage podcast is like, how did you start? How did you come up with your idea? How did you fund it? Uh, how long did it take to develop your first version? So, and it's been amazing because I'm learning from other founders and I'm applying the lessons that I'm learning on my own SaaS and then applying with the customers that we serve, uh, at Dev Squad. And, and I think it's helping people to listen too, too, because we, we just crossed a thousand dollars, a thousand dollars, a thousand listeners per episode. Uh, and that's it's great. And it's, you know, I'm like, Oh, people are finding this useful <laughs> but was was kind of selfish i want to learn from these people how can i get them to talk to me for an hour <laughs> it's a great strategy and, and yeah i do the same thing i, I learn a ton in in talking to, to great people but i think there's a really important thing is to to you know just a kind of a missed market and because uh, a lot of people are talking to the, the the unicorn founders and massive companies and and they don't remember what it was like Mm-hmm. You know, when they were, you know, 10 million or what they did to get to 10 or 20, mm-hmm. uh, they might remember a hundred to 500, but you know, it, it's very, very different. So I think that's a market that a lot of time is overlooked. Mm-hmm. And, and it might be, it's even a different kind of founder, you know, like it, if it's the same founder, that person kept changing, 
But I, I have a friend and he took a company to 10 million and had a lot of investors and then he got fired. And then he took another company to 10 million and got a lot of investors. He got fired. And then he's like, look, I am the zero to 10 guy. That's the part <laughs> that I know. I have another yeah. guy that I know. And then he, he got brought on as later CEO, kind of like to replace the zero to 10. And then he'd go 10 to a hundred. And then he also got fired. And then he's like, okay, I am the 10 to a hundred. So like, <laughs> it's like you have to become different people, person. Yes. To, to do that, uh, you either change a lot yourself or you just stay who you are and go do again what you love to do. And, and so again, it's, and the founders that are still there in those companies, like they grew to a hundred million, they're doing different things than what they were doing. Absolutely. Zero to 10, you know? Yeah, very, very different. And, and you're right. There's not, a, I think there's not a lot of people that can scale like that. Uh, it, it's pretty rare. And, yeah. and sometimes they're, they're a figurehead. Sometimes they really do scale. Sometimes their, their responsibilities are, are significantly reduced and you know, investors will bring in the, the grown up team to, to run the company. The professionals um, squeeze the life out of the company, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's a very interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's very funny because the cocoa professionals can never take a company from zero to one or from one to ten. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> they have no idea what to do. They're like, where are my people to do this stuff? And it's like, yeah. no, it's just you. <laughs> yeah, we we work with this one guy. He was an M and A. And then he decided to build his one, his product. Uh, and then he had his whole team behind him. And he, one day he showed up to his office and there was no power or internet. And then he's like, who is responsible to paint this? And he's like, oh, shit, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Welcome <laughs> to Entrepreneur Life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's too funny. So what have been some of the, the great lessons that you've learned along the way? Um, I have learned that it's never as easy as we think would be. <laughs> yes, that's true. You know, like I, I built my first business and then I moved to the United States and I was like, yeah, I built a business in Brazil. I sold that business. It's going to be super easy to build a second business and took like two or three times as longer to get my consulting firm to the size I'll be able to get in a year or two. You know, and then I was like, oh, I'm going to do a SaaS product. I have built SaaS products for a bunch of people. I can build my own SaaS product. That's going to be easy. Again, so fell a couple of times. Now DevStats is doing much better, but still it's, it's not the speed that I thought I'll be able to move, even sure. though I have all this knowledge, you know? So like, I guess the big lesson is like, the, in practice, the theory is different. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, because things take longer than you think and, and they're more expensive, um, what are some ways that, that you've found that it work well to fund companies? So one way, specifically to fund SaaS companies, you know, I, it worked for me and work for a lot of our, my customers, is to build a business first that's less complex than a software company. And then use that business to fund your second business. Interesting. You know, that that reduced a lot of the stress. I saw a lot of these spin-off SaaS products that I work on that went to become eight figures companies. But because when you build a company that's less complex that's soft than software, for example, service business or like a retail business, you still have to hire, you still have to learn marketing. But in SaaS, you're gonna lose money for a longer a longer period of time. It's more complex. So I, I believe Building SaaS as a spin-off product 
it's overlooked because everyone wants to build a huge unicorn. Uh, it's that's kind of changing now with the economy yes. where we are. It's kind of being cool again to building profitable business. Uh, so it's kind of. I don't think it's cool. ever not been cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I remember being on this basketball game with a, a friend of mine that was building a VC fund company, and I was complaining about how much taxes I had to pay, and he's like, "Oh, your business make money." <laughs> <laughs> That's not cool. <laughs> you should be like losing, losing, losing because eventually you're going to sell for a bunch of money. Uh, you know, but I feel like I like to put the odds in my favor. Uh, and when you're trying to build a unicorn, you're kind of putting the odds against you. Right. If, you, if you're just trying to build a, a successful eight figure SaaS, uh, and, and you're coming from another business and you can fund it yourself, you don't have that. Like the thing with investors, if like, for their numbers to work, they can't invest in a company that's going to make only $10 million. You better make a hundred million, 300 million bucks. Right. Right. But, but for you, like that's, that's pretty good. That's amazing. That's pretty good. Yeah. So like I, I, I have a customer, for example, he's a photographer. He has a very big photographer business and now he's turning that into a SaaS for photographers. That's going to add a bunch of revenue for him. So I, I think there's many, strategies and they're all valid and, and I love on my podcast to hear about all like the different strategies and like actually last week I, I interviewed a guy that raised 300 million dollars and it was super cool to learn from him but I think uh, one strategy that's overlooked it's just doing as a spin-off of the company that you have and use those funds to to fund your SaaS and build your SaaS that's how I'm doing that's how I saw a lot of my customers on my consulting firm do and and build a lot of businesses, even business that they sold for quite a bit of money. So it's just one strategy. There's many strategies you have to understand and see what you're going to do. And, and also, even in my podcast, I interview people that start with this strategy, grew to a point, and, like, and then sw- swap the strategy to now go and raise a bunch of money. Sure. But, but I do believe it's the most, the way to really put the odds in your favor. If you start a business and you use that business to fund your SaaS uh, product. That's uh, a, a great concept. I think maybe we should redefine what a unicorn is instead of, uh, you know, being a billion dollar company or now maybe multi-billion. Um, I, I think it should be a profitable SaaS company because <laughs> those are so hard to find. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, there, there are a lot of, of great bootstrap companies and I think that's, that's really smart. And the longer you can delay, even if you do raise funds and there's nothing wrong with that, but the longer you can wait to do that and build a model that's profitable, that's scalable, that uh, you know, you, you you get to you know five ten million dollars in, in revenue, and then go raise. You get much better terms. You get much better deals. You keep a lot more equity than if you you know are, are trying to raise and you have a hundred k revenue. Yes, or, or no revenue at all. Or some no people, revenue, right? Pre revenue. Like, yeah, some people like if you have just the right resume, you are able to raise pre revenue. You know, like I interviewed this girl and she worked at um, Cloudflare and. She was an early employee there. So when she go to raise money, investors would trust her. And and I love her company and what she's building, but it's just a different strategy. And it, yes. in my opinion, care more risks, um, you know? So, uh, yeah, I believe we should focus on profitability first. And if you have something that it's going to be huge, great. But if it's not going to be huge, at least you have a profitable business. And I think that's something that, that is, again, is maybe a little bit overlooked, is if you build a $10 million company that's profitable, that's a great thing because you have options. You can sell, you can keep it. You don't have to sell. You know, you're, you're not worried about runway or running out of cash, 
because it's it's profitable. You're making money. And you know, there's nothing wrong with a company that makes two, three, four, five million dollars a year. That's that's pretty good living. Yeah, it's probably the best <laughs> job you ever have gonna have. Exactly. Because like <laughs> let's look at the alternative. You build a huge company, but you own less. Your salary as a CEO is probably the same three million, but now you have a bunch of people to stress you out. <laughs> uh, and then when you sell, you only get like 10%. Right. So, so then you got $30 million, uh, which kind of like could be the same of just building a smaller company worth $30 million, for example, or, or something like that. You right. Because right. you build a company 10 times bigger that sell for 300 million or for a billion, let's say, uh, but then you only get a hundred, keep a hundred million of that billion or build a smaller company, less stressful, sell for a hundred million and you keep your hundred million. And it's like apples to apples, you know? So that's right. And then, and again, like think about who you're serving. I think DevStats is the only product in our space that's not funded by VC. So love that. So like, I think that's an unfair advantage because I'm serving my customers and I'm really focusing on solving the problem uh, as they're serving like, they're, they're investors. They're trying to go to massive scale. And that's why right. you have so, so many layoffs right now. It's because people are over optimist and they were like hiring, 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 hiring. And now they're like, Oh, you know, they yeah. were a little bit irresponsible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot irresponsible in some cases. <laughs> but, but you're right. I think it is fundamentally different in, in being bootstrapped and really being focused. On, on serving your customers and, and you know doing the, the right thing for them. And sometimes that means building something now or reinvesting in the company versus um, you know taking something out or trying to meet a quarterly number because you have to hit that growth number to keep the investors happy or they're going to bring you into the boardroom and shoot you. You know, that, that's a just completely different set of priorities. Yeah. Yeah. Like in my own consulting firm, I have been able to like, hey, we're not going to take any customers for the next many months because I want to make sure Customers are not coming here and leaving here. Let's fix our process first. So like being able to even make those decisions of like when you want to grow, when you're ready to go, it's amazing. And that's some of like the optionality that you have in your bootstrap, you know? Yeah. And another thing, like there's this stigma against building a lifestyle business, but why do we build business? Isn't for us to have an amazing life? You would think, right? <laughs> you know, is it for you to be able to to enjoy life with the people that you love and do the things that you want? Uh, so I believe every business should start as a lifestyle business. And then if you figure out there is a something bigger there, and then you can scale and raise a bunch of money. But like, are we building business to to have a better life? You know, right. And, and you're right. I think there there is somewhat of a stigma around that, but there shouldn't be. And I don't think those things are mutually exclusive in building a lifestyle business and, and building an empire. You, you really don't have to choose between those. You can build a lifestyle business that, that turns into an empire because you're reinvesting. You're you're doing you're doing smart things. Yeah, exactly. Because like I, I see so many founders that invest everything and they keep reinvesting. They keep losing, losing. They never build uh, enough of a nest egg or, or enough of like a being in a headspace that you can actually build a big company. Yes. If you if you take care of yourself first, you know, like you you pay yourself good money, you put some money aside, and now you're like in a better position to to go to make big bets. That's why like second, third, fourth time founders are so much more successful. It's because yes. I can afford to make bets and not lose. Or lose because I'm going to be right. Paid. <laughs> right. They're not worried about how am I going to pay the mortgage if if this bet goes bad. 
Yeah. So I believe like putting yourself in a good place to make, to be able to make strong bets is where you have to, to do. And again, you go back to the idea, maybe don't even start with a SaaS business, build something first that will allow you to have money to build a SaaS business and to make strong bets. And do you have a specific methodology that you follow in doing that and in investing? Yeah, you know, some people do traction, some people do like profit first, Mike McCallowitz. Is there like a specific methodology you use? Yes, I love profit first, have been following oh, for yes. years. Uh, again, because like I, I, I know my life, my lifestyle would change a lot. Like I fly my own airplane, but I know because of profit first that even if all my business go under, I'll be okay because I have been putting money away and I have been investing in real estate. I have been investing in other things. So like, uh, you, you never build a business that you wanted to fail, but markets change quick. There's those black swan events, you know, like COVID. Yep. Uh, and what if you're like putting every hundred percent back in and never took anything out, you look very stupid after 10 years working so hard and having nothing to show for, you know? So, and it's sad. That happens way too often. <laughs> it does. It does yeah. happen way too often. So like, I'll be super sad if all my business go under uh, because again, I want them to be a lot more successful, but I would have something to show for and I wouldn't have to ever go back to work to someone else. Yes. You know? Yeah, that's really, really good. I think that's, that's brilliant. And we'll make sure and link profit first and, uh, and tag uh, Mike McCallowitz. He's a great, great guy. Brilliant. Yeah. It's, I remember yeah. listening, re- listen to his book and I was like, most people are one bad month away from going broke. Yep. And, and that just really hit home. That and hurts. I, it hurts. <laughs> and I was like, uh, that shouldn't be me. And then I, I really, that's kind of like when I change and then I, I figure we have to put money out of our business and, and to be in that place where we can take those bigger bets, you have to take care of yourself and your family first. Yeah. So how do you know when to make a big bet and, and, or not? I think it comes down to the basic principle of investing. You never invest in something they cannot afford to lose. Mm. <laughs> good rule. You know, like, so never make a bet they can afford to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's how you do it. And then as you develop, you can always afford to, to do better. And I, I, I work with this, um, this guy and he's like a very successful businessman. And he was like, I only do his small business and his business are huge. Like, but like for him, it's a small, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So, like, so maybe you only make small bets, but like as you get better and better, your your small your small is different than my small. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Perspective does change as, as you, your businesses that you're growing they get bigger. Your perspective changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. so, so what do you do to as your business grows? What do you do to keep yourself growing? So you're you know your your state you're growing ahead of your business. So you you're not becoming the bottleneck. Yeah, I, I think you always have to be studying, to be learning, to be willing to to change who you are, and to be self-evaluating. You know, I I do work with the possibility that at some point I might not be the right person to run my business. There is a chance that my business is going to overgrow me. So, like, I think you have to be realistically with yourself that you can fail, uh, and that things could go south, or they just your business can grow bigger than you. Uh, and if you don't want that to happen, you have to keep working on it. I read a lot. I talk with a lot of people. Like, uh, I remember when I was building the business for the first million, I, I would talk with a lot of invest people, like entrepreneurs that, that were in their, that were able to do that. And then 
later I met a lot of entrepreneurs that have done the zero to 10. And I don't know many people that have done 10 to 100, but that's not the stage that I am. So that's okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you have to like be closer to, to those people. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, where can people learn more about you and Dev Squad and Dev Stats online? So, quickest way is to go to my website, philalves.com, P H I L A L V E S. So, there you're going to have the links to my, both my companies, to my podcast, to my Twitter. So, and you can sign up to my newsletter over there too. Excellent. And we'll make sure and link that in the show notes. And everybody should subscribe to SaaS Origin Stories as well. Oh, yeah. Great, great podcast. I strongly recommend it, but I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, Phil, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you for your time. That, that was amazing. Thanks again, Phil, for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom and insights from over 100 freaking SaaS products. I mean, wow, that is so good. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. If you're enjoying the show and getting value, subscribe and follow us here or on our new YouTube channel. Everyone who subscribes this week will get a box of tech-themed temporary tattoos so you can show off your dedication to all things SaaS without the big commitment. Join us next week for Nina Suri, founder and CEO of Zappa AI. It's a SaaS platform that leverages AI to assist organizations in streamlining their hiring process while eliminating hiring bias, even unconscious bias. It's an amazing use for AI. And our expert next week, Aaron Zakowski, CEO of Zamo Digital, a marketing agency helping B2B SaaS companies grow revenue with LinkedIn and Facebook ads. You want marketing that works? Aaron unpacks the formula to do it. Great conversation. So I will see you next week. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.